0: During this podcast, we'll examine the theological basis for the Trump administration's recently proposed health and human services rule that would allow healthcare workers to refuse to provide any medical care to any patient based on religious, moral, or conscientious objection. With me to discuss the topic is the Reverend Patricia Lyons, the Missioner for Evangelism and Community Engagement, the Episcopal Diocese of Washington. Reverend Lyons, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Reverend Lyon's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. The proposed rule notes the federal government has since the 1970s allowed health care providers freedoms of conscience and religious exercise. Initially, these religious beliefs or moral conviction protections were related to performing or assisting in certain few medical procedures, moreover, abortion and sterilization. Over the years, these protections have been expanded to include other medical or medically-related services. For example, the 2010 Affordable Care Act included a provision protecting clinicians with religious objection from participating in assisted suicide. The current proposed rule, published this past January 26th and titled Protecting Statutory Conscious Rights in Healthcare Delegations of Authority, would substantially expand these protections. Under the proposed, the health care provider is broadly defined to include all health care personnel, organizations, including hospitals and laboratories, a health insurance plan, or any kind of health care organization. The provider can object to, and I quote, any health-related services, health service programs or research activities, health studies, or any other service related to health or wellness, close quote. The proposed also protects healthcare personnel from providing a referral or in identifying someone or some entity that would in turn provide a referral for such medical services that the provider is objecting. The proposed would affect as many as 750,000 hospitals and physician offices. Again, with me to examine the proposed rule's underlying rationale. To what extent can religious or moral exercise be legitimately claimed denying health care is the Reverend Patricia Lyons. So that is somewhat lengthy uh, background. Uh, Patricia, let me ask first, uh, your title is, I found, interesting. So let me ask you, explain your title, Missioner for Evangelism and Community Engagement.
1: Well, it's a lot less complicated than all the regulations you just uh, laid out. Uh, it's my job to serve on the staff of the Episcopal Bishop of the Diocese of Washington. So our office and diocese is really just a word that means this this region, which is uh, Washington, D.C., and, and parts of Maryland. And I serve on the bishop's staff, um, and it is my job to coordinate um, evangelistic endeavors in the diocese. And what that really means is helping, first and foremost, baptized uh, Episcopalians, um, articulate the story of their own faith, how it is that they have come to know God and what difference that's making in their lives, Uh, help them understand the obligations and the opportunities and the joy that that come with being a baptized Christian, and then helping uh, congregations, religious communities like campus ministries and chaplaincies to articulate to their communities um, how they feel about their obligations and opportunities in those communities. Uh, We believe that, you know, God has put our churches and our faith communities into the public square, uh, not to build walls and uh, be on one side of a stained glass window, but rather that as light comes into the church and uh, what we feel is God's call to get outside of it. Um, So that's the community engagement part, which is what I like to say to people is, if it's my job to go to a church and say, you know, if, if tomorrow uh, someone came to take this church down, who else in this community would lay down in front of the bulldozer? You know, would your local rabbi lay down in front of the bulldozer? Would your uh, Cub Scout troop leader come and lay down? Um, are there other people around you with whom you've partnered for the common good who would say, no, that, that church, St. Mary's, or... Um, St. Maximilian, or whatever the name of your church is, that people would recognize that you see obligations and, and joy uh, in taking part in the common good, um, that everyone in a community would experience uh, the Church's mission, not, not in that they had to agree with the Church or join the Church, um, though of course we love when people feel called to join, but we really do have a moral obligation in the Anglican tradition to participate in, in the common good, to partner with others in the common good. And I would hope that every rabbi or imam or atheist in a neighborhood would say that uh, that they. Episcopal Church in their neighborhood was c- contributing bravely and consistently on matters of social justice um, and common concern. So that's really my job for the 88 um, brick-and-mortar churches that we have in the campus ministries within this area.
0: Thank you. And you are located uh, our office at the uh, very well-known uh, church house at Mount Saint Alban. So let's let's get into this. Per your mention of the public square and the common good. Before we get to examples of how this proposed rule might be applied, assuming it goes final, uh, let me just ask generally uh, this question. How has religious exercise or objection uh, been applied in healthcare delivery? As I noted in the intro, uh, it's historically been limited to broadly defined, and I, I, I characterize this as sanctity of life-related matters.
1: Mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. I, I think the what we see. Let me just say, all of the proposed changes you've you've made um, that the Trump administration is seeking um, are an extreme position. Really, for decades in this country since the. Uh, Roe v. Wade decision and, and, and the Casey decision, uh, there, there have been carve-outs in, in healthcare care delivery uh, around abortion and abortion services, and in some areas, contraception, but, but mostly around uh, abortion. Um, so the, these new uh, suggestions of expanding this to, um, to protect a person's claim to conscience, to withhold uh, health uh, care based on any thing that's construed as, as a religious objection, um, th- this is new, and this is extreme. Um, but what it, the question it raises, really, it really isn't a matter, I think, from coming from uh, the Anglican tradition, and of course the, the Anglican tradition in America goes uh, by the name of the Episcopal Church, so the, the Episcopal Anglican position is that one has to follow their friendships. Uh, so I have to sort of problematize the, the the question here. So yet the Anglican tradition is going to support someone following their conscience. Um, t- to do so is is a sacred act. It's actually an obligation in our tradition. Um, you have to follow your conscience in our tradition, going back even before the Reformation uh, to the Catholic moral tradition. You have to follow your conscience, even if it's incorrectly formed. <laughs> you have an obligation because the understanding that the conscience. Um, there's many ways to to define it but but it 's seen as the sort of uh the core and, and and sacred sanctuary of the person in which um, they hear the voice of god um, now you You may have different um, mitigating circumstances in your formation of conscience that that make that complicated um, but but this tradition holds that you must obey your conscience. Um, but having said that, that, the question really of the, of the Trump administration's proposals, is really not a matter of whether or not the person should follow their conscience. That's not what these regulations are suggesting. What they're saying is there should be no consequence, no legal consequence or any consequence in the, in the workplace, for following one's conscience. This is where the Anglican tradition and the Episcopal Church in this country cannot support that um, the bottom line is if we take something like conscientious objection in the military, you know, a soldier can refuse um, uh, to participate in an act of war or in a war in general. Uh, but there's then a trial, right? <laughs> you, you present your, your conscience, um, and then a, a military court has to decide whether or not your claim is legitimate. First and foremost, of course, the society must decide whether or not the war itself or the act of war is just. Um, so, there's a process, and you can wind up going to jail. Um, so, in, in that conscience question, uh, the Anglican tradition would, of course, support the person in upholding their conscience, but the notion that there won't be consequences to that. Um, now, if we go into the case of health care, I think this is a very important question. Um, and again, it's what it, 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 conscience needs to be followed, but if you absolutize the following of conscience, as if that's the only obligation on a person um, is, first of all, to turn the moral life into an individual affair against the world, a person contra mundi, um, which is not the Anglican or the Christian understanding. Um, of society, well, we know from Thomas Aquinas, we are social by nature, mm-hmm. not by cho- not by choice, and that goes, of course, before Aquinas. But this is a core Christian conception that that we become fully human in community with other people. So we we don't have conceptions of the state that, that would come out of, say, the 16th or 17th century, um, sort of Hobbes and Locke. This idea that one man is to another a wolf, or that we enter a social contract for our good, uh, or that so we can. Uh, have lunch and not be someone 's lunch I mean these, these minimalist conceptions of of, of of a social contract are not Christianity. Um, we believe that we are social by nature. we become our best selves in community, which means we have uh, rights we can claim, but every right has um, an obligation. Um, so the idea is we we allow the state to function in something like healthcare because it can deliver and uh, defend the human dignity of people in ways that individuals can't. So that it, it's a necessity. Uh, this concept is called subsidiarity in moral yeah. theology, but it's a necessity that the state exists, to protect the welfare and the human dignity, health, of course, being intrinsic to that in Christian theology, in ways that individuals simply can't. I can't do things for my mother or someone down the street alone. So the state enters and meets the obligation that the community has to one person. So these are, you know, this is, of course, the idea behind insurance pools and things like that. There are things that groups can do that individuals can't. But the call to be created in the image of God and defend the human dignity of all people is that it must be done. So we, we give over a bit of our liberty to the state, also known as taxes, (laughs) um, or uh, that we would have to serve in the military, things like that. We give those liberties over because we have to ensure the dignity of all people through a delivery system that that can get it done. So the problem with these health care, this expansive notion of protecting the conscience of an individual, is what starts to happen is you you undercut the rule of law and justice, now, if you, let's say someone uh, is seeking um, a procedure, a health procedure that, that violates the conscience of the provider, well, if that's according to the rule of law, if if it's a society, it's like something like abortion, which is legal in all 50 states, if a person is seeking that procedure that is according to the rule of law, something that has been decided as just and legal, to withhold it is to discriminate against that person. So, of course, it might violate the conscience of the person. And this is a long way of saying that, according to Anglican theology, that person then should quit their job or resign or take the consequences that would come from any other um, malpractice of their job. And we would, again, defend the right of the person if they had discerned in their conscience that this was the voice of God in their life. Um, it is not the Church's job to say that that can't be true. But it certainly then begins to violate the obligations to a non-discriminatory delivery of health care that someone who is discerned, um, according to the to the teaching of the church mm-hmm. uh, a procedure that um, it's, it's a, a concern for their health their well-being you know that person's right to pursue the health care that has been deemed legal see this is the question that has been deemed legal to withhold that from them is discrimination so, so yes on the conscience for sure but what's very disturbing about these regulations uh, is that it seems to say um, that you can use a violation of your conscience, um, and stay in your job and continue to be part of a delivery system that by definition is now discriminatory. It's experienced as discriminatory by someone seeking legal procedures. And, and that is where we begin to see the problem of, of saying that conscience rules all. Conscience participates in the social order. But if, it's, if it doesn't have to meet other ends of justice in a society, you begin to sort of undercut, frankly, the rule of law.
0: Okay, thank you. So relative discrimination, you've probably seen this phrase in other realms, but here used, it weaponizes, uh, one interpretation is it weaponizes discrimination. Mm-hmm. I have several examples, but you've largely answered them in some. One example, and this is an actual uh, case out of Michigan, whereby a physician refused uh, to treat um a six-day-old infant who is the child of a lesbian couple, here you would say, correct me if I'm wrong, that that's the right of the physician in following their conscience, but they would likely or should face a consequence. The immediate question that comes to mind is, is this proposal, as you understand or as we understand it, workable in any way? You, you seem to suggest the answer would be it would be workable Maybe the answer, and this has been noted by trade associations or professional associations, that maybe these professionals should leave their career profession. Uh, So maybe one of the solutions is, relative to workability, is the provider should change positions. That's seemingly somewhat drastic, but absent that, is this workable?
1: Well, it's workable toward a theocracy. (laughs) I mean, it's 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 a rational path toward the federal government. Let's say in this case, legislating uh, the conscience or even the space of the conscience of individuals, and even in the Hobby Lobby case, di- disturbing, um, mm-hmm. treating companies as individuals with the rights of conscience.
0: Right.
1: That simply moves toward a conception of government that, that is just a radical new conception. I mean, sadly, it's not new in the world. It has all different words in the 20th century. Um, these, these are people we've fought wars against. Um, when the government gets into the business of saying that people are allowed to discriminate in the carrying out of their, let's say call it a profession, in the public square, and, and to be protected from legal consequence of discrimination, um this is dangerous to the system we have enjoyed, um, though it is very much a rational process toward perhaps the Trump administration's alternative view, um, which is that, again, conscience, and this sort of odd conception that's built into these regulations, that conscience is an individual right that trumps other rights, that is to say the right of that lesbian couple you mentioned to have health care delivered to their child, but, but not just that it trumps the rights of others, it, that it actually... Um, negates or mutes the person's obligation in the public square. Um, And we could do a whole podcast on the development of what's called the professions in the last few centuries in Christian moral theology, which is to say... Most professions really up through the 20th century have their own codes or like something like a Hippocratic Oath or you take an oath uh, to enter the bar. These are all signs of earlier times where it was very clear that the reason you were allowed to function in the public square was that you were given gifts which were not your own, which are given to you by a creator who is feeding, uh, sort of irrigating uh, human community with, with gifts. Not all of us can be doctors. Not all of us can be uh, structural engineers, but we all need both. So the whole concept, and I, I, I'm aware that, that we have stripped the public square of much of this conception, is that, that a profession is itself something that is not owned by a person. Um, we now have resumes and things like that. We begin to think we own our work. Um, but work is a in Christian. Moral tradition is that your participation in the realization and the good of all people... I mean, so you and I can, can talk about moral theology in a way that it sounds like we're talking about the tax code, which you can and can't do, what you should and shouldn't do. We've got to remember the, the goal here, right? The, the goal is, for God so loves the world! You know, creation is an act of love. Um, And every individual conscience, if we're going to speak right now about the individual conscience, which has been turned into an idol, if you ask me, in these new regulations, Mm -hmm. the the, the conscience is a tool. It is is not a weapon. (laughs) Um, It is a tool that helps a free person, which is the Anglican conception of a person, that a person is free. Um, It helps a free person discern their relationship to truth, that they would experience freedom and joy. I mean, we were, human life is not a moral endeavor alone, um, because then if we did everything right, you could say that we would have reached the, the pinnacle or the purpose of human existence, and it is not <laughs> to be good people, um, at least not in Christianity. It, there's more of a chiropractic function of, of conscience that it, it, it helps us find our place in truth, um, our relationship to good, such that we experience freedom and then fruition, and then through the grace that flows through a person who is in connection with the truth in the world, that person becomes a sort of epicenter of transformation for other relationships around them. So that's not only what we're called to and invited to in Christianity, um, and then we're given the moral law as, as a way to sort of have that fit, right? If you're, if you're out of, like, if you take them something like marriage and I'm married, so you could ask me what my marriage is like. My friend David, if, if I started talking for an hour about the moral dimension of my marriage, I hope at one point you would interrupt me and say, is that all it's about? Right. Uh, whether or not you've followed this rule or not followed that one, that would be to prioritize conscience and the moral endeavor as the core of marriage. I would hopefully then stop and say, absolutely not. Marriage is an invitation to, to a level of intimacy, um, of being known and of knowing, and of healing and being healed, of loving and being loved, of, of feeling joy and sharing it, such that it's, it's transformative. If the moral piece isn't there, it's going to be hard to experience the rest of the beauty. Uh, so the moral piece is essential, but it would be tragic to think that the entire endeavor was moral. And, and that, again, that would be to say that the conscience was the most important thing. The truth is, the conscience is just the kind of road system that allows the, the, the thing to... Um, transform yourself mm-hmm. in the world. So, if we move back into our specific question here about the person who is opting out of delivering justice, which is the, the purpose of the state, um, the purpose of the state is not to protect the individual conscience of people, though that is essential, just like the moral life is essential to the Christian life, or essential to something like marriage, but it's not the only thing that the reason the profession or the professional in the public square has a conscience is to help them stay in harmony with the common good. Um, And if your perception is that something you're being asked to do violates the common good, you have to get out of the way and allow someone else uh, to be an aqueduct of justice and the rule of law to that person. Um, and, And that's, Precisely, we get back to the, the legal issues. Something like abortion um, is a legal procedure in the United States. Something like gay marriage is now legal in the United States. So you really are undercutting the delivery of the lawfulness of these uh, decisions. Therefore, you're inhibiting the justice that flows from them um, when you withhold. And we would put you in jail for violating other um, uh, tenants of justice that we had voted on and that were part of the rule of law. So the, the Trump administration's desire to sort of carve out these issues of conscience, it's just is very political. I can, I can see the constituency for this mm-hmm. new set of regulations. We all can. Um, and as a religious person, I, I, I do respect deeply that there are people who feel at the core of their being that some things that are legal in our society are abhorrent to them. Um, And I I would absolutely defend their right to declare that, to write it, and to exercise their First Amendment right to do so. But the the state has obligations, and the state is obligated to deliver without discrimination basic health care needs according to what has been decided by that civilization, whether it's the state, the county, the federal government. That must be delivered, and to to impede that would really be the same as committing any other crime. Uh, against justice, and we just can not This is so sympathetic to some people, because it looks like you're defending, you know, the Little Sisters of the Poor, or these other organizations... Exactly, right. Right. I mean, they're incredibly sympathetic, and I would just simply say that it's the job of the, the, the baptized Christian in the public square to just continue to say to people, this particular question is not a question of conscience. It's a question of, should the government protect people from the consequence of their choice? And then which people and which ideas, that's where we move to the theocracy, What actually winds up happening is. I wonder how many of these um, folks who are in favor of these um, new regulations are considering how Muslims might use this, Native Americans might use this, atheists might use these uh, protections. What, they don't want to say the, um, the Pledge of Allegiance because it violates their conscience. I would be fascinated to watch people who are proponents of this, to play out the scenarios uh, what if it is not part of what they call this loosely defined and quite vague, actually, notion of Judeo-Christian values? I would love to see them go to work uh, with these with these regulations on people who have vastly different views than they, they do. I think they would begin to realize, wait a minute, wait a minute, we don't really want to move into the government protecting people from the consequence of law. Um, just because they claim their conscience. I think this is very short-sighted. Even if I was on the inside of that movement, I would be the one sitting at the table saying, are we sure we want this? Um, Because this is really the government moving into the establishment of one religion, and the question is, is that going to mean all religions? Mm -hmm.
0: So per your, um, I'll get to your aqueduct comment, but just to say I was going to get to the separation church and state issue per your theocracy. I was going to ask about, and you did cover it, the uh, inherent conflict between one's moral and religious beliefs aligning with or not uh, the professional oath or the impossibility thereof. But I I was intrigued by your comment of aqueduct, and that gets to this issue of referring. So the proposed also protects uh, the provider from refusing to refer or even identify someone who would refer in turn. And based on your comment, uh, Reverend Lyons, it seemed to suggest that you would be
1: opposed to that,
0: providing Absolutely. that protection.
1: Absolutely, yes. There, there's Again, it, this is complicated because these are my brothers and sisters of faith, um, in many cases, who um, some of them, you know, they're ideological grandparents uh, from the moral majority movement in, in the 80s. Um, I I understand that they feel threatened, and that they feel the public square is being stripped of what they, for many centuries, frankly, in this country, were used to, which was a sort of soft support, frankly, of Christianity in the public square, a sort of ambient Protestantism Mm -hmm. um, that that has been part of of America for centuries. Um, And that is disappearing. Um, and I understand that that for a certain kind of person, that is very alarming uh, for those of us in the Episcopal church. I have to say uh, we recognize the shift and the transition that needs to happen that we need to really form our communities, not hoping that the state would have a sort of soft Christian formation as one of its functions. We treat this as an opportunity because the truth is that the mixing of church and state. Um, has, has really corrupted the Church, and I don't know that it's converted the, the state. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this has not been a good experiment. Um, so we're actually quite happy, though I, I don't want to minimize the grief that, you know, people who are used to going to public high school football games and hearing a prayer at the beginning, trust me, I am all for praying that no one gets a, a concussion. But mm-hmm. as an Episcopalian, uh, I recognize the opportunity for me to say a prayer before the game begins and not ask the state or the principal to say it for me. This is an opportunity, um, an invitation to authenticity and to discipleship, the Church having to ask itself every hour, every minute if we are following the person of Jesus Christ and not simply hear the PA system turn on and and have some person sort of being an odd, secular shepherd um, of the the public square. So it's a change, it's traumatic, and we are experiencing the grief. Uh, if you read that that book that's come out, I think in the last year, that the death of white Christian America mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. is a fascinating study. That see that author's argument that um, these these very regulations that you're talking about here that are proposed, these are the signs of just the sort of the stages of grief um, and an attempt to to really use the lever of government to establish in public, you know, in your doctor's office, in the bakery where you will not make a cake for a gay wedding, to somehow drag back into that public space some kind of thumb on the scale um, for a kind of Judeo-Christian conception of, of what is true or what um, what is good. Um, the truth is there was never a consensus on that. Uh, we don't know what is good uh, by things just written. We know by being in relationship to a living God. So I, I rejoice in the Episcopalian that we've got to do that daily work of discipleship every day to figure out how we ought to, as individuals and as a community of faith, operate in the public square. But this notion that we are going to drag back in in one of the stages of grief for the death of, of ambient Christianity um, in this country, um, the, these, these protections, which remember, one person's protection is is, is another person's theft. Um, if you present your child, uh, for, um, a medical procedure that is essential, um, and you are refused because of someone's claim to conscience, um, that, that is that is, um, that is a horrific failure of the common good. And if these conscience folks who, who really have decided that this is their idol, their golden calf is the claim to an individual conscience, as if we have... that means you have no more obligations to any... I have as many obligations to my Muslim, atheist, Jewish, um, Quaker neighbor, if I'm their dentist, mm-hmm. um, whether or not they ever share my, my faith... Um, You know, to say God did not establish religion as a zone of moral obligation. Our religions are the well to which we move that we would be empowered and transformed to bring the common good to the whole world. If someone refuses, it gets back to the aqueduct, if someone refuses to let justice roll down on their own profession, um, one, I think that's a very sad view of what they think creation is. Um, that, that your conscience can become a hindrance to someone else's experience of the common good. Um, I, that, that to me is just, it's beyond odd, uh, but I have to accept that, um, you know, I have my blind spots as well, but that looks a lot like a blind spot to me, to not see someone else's cry for justice. Mm-hmm. And not just the American history, I mean, whether it's women's suffrage or chattel slavery. I mean, this notion that the conscience of a plantation owner um, or the conscience of of a governor to stand in front of the school, that it not be um, desegregated. I mean, we know what this looks like when people want to use the—I mean, when you have federal troops facing off against um, uh, local police— over something like segregation. That's what it looks like when you have two people who want the federal government or a government on their side. We've seen this movie, and it's terrible.
0: So in some protection, in some ways, uh, dressed up as oppression. So with that, um, we're at our time boundary, Reverend. I genuinely appreciate this discussion. Very uh, illuminating in in understanding this, I think, and the underlying, uh, as we discussed, theological basis or not for this. So with that, uh, thank you again for your time.
1: Thank you very much, and have a wonderful Easter.
0: Thank you. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archived program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.